Welcome to episode 190, Safe Sex in a Digital Age, Considering Sexual Health and Safety in an Online World, featuring Dr. Stephanie Garlick, licensed social worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am joined by Dr. Stephanie Gorlick, and she is a licensed social worker. She has a PhD, and her jam is a really interesting one that is so relevant to our society today. We're going to be talking about what safe sex looks like in a digital age, knowing how many of us are online all the time and our clients are online, and there are these elements of safe sexuality that we talk about Um, pertaining to, let's say, sexually transmitted infections. But there's this other element of online safety that we also need to be shining a light on. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Gorlick. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So tell our listeners a bit about you and about how you came to have this particular specialization in doing education on this topic. Yeah, um, it's a, a long story. I'll try to make short. Uh, as you mentioned, I am a clinical social worker, and I spent the vast majority of my career working with domestic violence sexual assault survivors, uh, including pediatric survivors. Um, and then in grad school, I ran a crisis line and drop-in center for high-risk women and girls. So I worked with survivors of human trafficking. I worked with commercial sex workers. I worked with young women that were trading sex for survival um, and, and was really immersed in a world where... Um, people were having their sexuality and their bodies and their autonomy weaponized against them in so many creative and horrifying ways. Um, After grad school, I decided to continue on and I did my postgraduate studies in sex therapy. So I'm a certified sex therapist. And at the time, what I said when I got accepted into the program was that I wanted to kind of work on the other side of that coin. And I wanted to um, stop focusing on the ugly side of human sexuality and instead help people have stronger, happier, healthier relationships. And that lasted until I got to the program. And I saw even amongst my my peers, amongst people who were already fully licensed professionals who had self-selected into sexual health, a lot of stigma and a lot of uh, shaming of people and a lot of marginalization, even within this supposedly very open-minded and progressive space. And it very quickly became apparent to me that my work with marginalized people was not at an end. It was just taking a new form. Um, For me, that has looked like working with the BDSM kink community. I've written several books on BDSM kink and mental health, specifically as a um, compassionate reaction to some of those experiences and, and behaviors I saw from my peers. I wanted to prepare other therapists with the information they needed to not cause harm to their clients. And that's been most of the work that I've done until the last couple years. Uh, last summer, um, not quite, you know, a little over a year ago, uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned, the Dobbs ruling. And I am, I, I joke that I'm married into the hacker community. My partner is uh, internationally prominent in the cybersecurity domain. And I looked at him after Dobbs fell and I said a lot of my clients and a lot of my friends' clients don't understand how at risk they are right now. And people in my world don't have the language or the knowledge to even explain how to keep their clients safe right now. We need you. 
And so he and I started very quickly within a week of Dobbs. We started doing um, recordings and educational podcasts and talks at conferences and talks to other uh, mental health classes and clinics about what safe sex looks like in in the digital age and about how technology informs and mediates our relationships and our health and our intimate decision making. And we've really done so from a safety planning and risk assessment framework, very much as a clinician, as a social worker, being able to say, you know, we want to affirm and empower autonomous choices and we want to celebrate diversity and encourage people to find community. We are not saying no to any of those things. And all of those things happen online today. What we're doing is saying, this is how you can do that more safely. And this is how you can protect yourself while you build those relationships or use those apps or find those communities. And so that has led me to this really intense time of, it seems like almost every day, there's a new threat to marginalized people in America, whether it's Uh, the governor of Texas wanting a list of everybody that changed their gender markers on their driver's license, or whether it's Florida saying that trans children can be removed from the home. These are clinical issues. These are social work issues. And um, I happen to be lucky enough to be married to one of the best resources to educate myself. And together, we have kind of made it a mission to do what we can to mitigate a lot of the harm that people are doing using technology to do so. You've already hit on some really important themes and listening to you talk about it goes to this idea of autonomy and safety and changing the conversation about not just how we exist online, but that basically accepting a framework of we exist online and here are the things that we need to know about that as clinicians in order to help educate our clients, help keep them safe. I'm gonna start with a really big question first. What does safe sex look like in today's world? Just to explain for our listeners. So we at Clearly Clinical have had this conversation a little bit in the reproductive justice course that we did right after the Dobbs decision in awareness of what's happening with the apps that you're using. Like, where is this information going? How do we talk to clients about this if they have concerns about their safety or their online behaviors, for example? But we just scratched the surface. Can you give a quick kind of one of one 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 of like, here's what safe sex in today's world looks like, and this is why this is important, just to kind of give the framework for why we're having this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that many of us don't stop to think of is how ubiquitous technology has become. And I know that sounds like an obvious statement. We all know, you know, our cell phones are everywhere, everything has an app, but we tend to think of each website or each app as a siloed tool that we use. And we don't think about the way that those accumulate, not only across our days, you know, from movies to grocery shopping, to meal planning, to um, transportation, but also across the lifespan. We have a generation of young people that um, sociologists call digital natives. They, they were born after the internet. This is the water they swim in, it's the air they breathe. But even for those of us, I, I'm, I'm Gen X, you know, I remember a pre-internet time. Even for those of us that aren't digital natives, we don't necessarily think about the fact that 
from cradle to grave, our entire lives are mediated through a series of apps and websites now that are individually useful and handy. I can use a dating app to find my partner. My partner and I can use a household management app to divide up chores and to keep track of the grocery list. We can use a realty app to buy our first house. We can use, a, I can use a fertility tracker to help us have children. Our children's grades are on PowerSchool and Canvas. <laughs> and I, I mean, I can take the story all the way through to elder care apps, how I use um, uh, Wi-Fi enabled cameras to check in on my aging parents or to hire a care aide and to communicate with them to manage their medications from the minute we are conceived until the minute we die now every single thing we do is being quantified tracked measured repackaged and sold and it sounds a little hyperbolic or dystopian to say that but it's also not wrong <laughs> there are some people that think this is this great utopian new world, that this isn't a scary or overwhelming idea at all. But what safe sex looks like in a digital age is being mindful of that piece. It goes beyond knowing that barrier method contraception will prevent STIs and goes into knowing what technological software will prevent um, somebody I'm talking to on a dating profile from using the picture I sent to find my home address. You know, it's thinking about what are we sharing, not just in terms of fluid bonding, but in terms of information bonding. And how intentional are we being with that? Are we aware of when we're sharing information and who we're sharing information with? And are we able to take steps like we would buy a condom or use plan B to protect ourselves from outcomes that we don't want for ourselves? That to me is what safe sex looks like in a digital age. Thank you. As we're talking about this, I'm reminded very recently of the um, news story that broke with Mark Zuckerberg having put up uh, on his social media pictures of his kids and he put happy faces, like smiley faces over their faces. And it, it started this firestorm of like, oh my God, what does it mean that even Zuckerberg is concealing his child's identity online? Like, what does it say? And I'm sure you given the specialization you have, have lots of thoughts on that. Um, but I know for me, as someone who's on the outside of this, who doesn't have the exposure you do, it, it, it's like the creepy crawlies of just imagining like what's out there about me, what's out there about my family, what's out there about my clients, and the possibility of exposure for harm, I think is really fundamentally what we're talking about. And this I think I'm hearing psychoeducation piece that you're probably using with clients and and wanting to see more of in the clinical realm of like, here are the consequences to online dating pro profiles. Here's how we're decision making about what we're going to buy on Craigslist and how we pick it up and w what information we're releasing. Um, where do you see social workers, therapists, psychologists fitting into this conversation? Is it that? Is it psychoed? I think the psychoed is a huge huge place to start. And I think it's overwhelming for a lot of social workers, clinicians, you know, mental health people typically are not technology people. There's a reason why we didn't go into software development, we went into counseling. So it can feel intimidating or overwhelming or like we need to have a lot of like deep, like specific tech knowledge to have these conversations. But that's not actually where I have them. My favorite jumping off point to talk about digital safety and what in later years would be digital safe sex is actually the elf on the shelf. 
every holiday season, I end up talking to families, the couples, the parents that I work with about the elf on the shelf, because that is the bane of my little data privacy loving existence. Because if you think about it, we are teaching toddlers, right? Like 18 months, three years after a certain age, they get that mom's moving and it's not fun anymore. We are teaching our littlest, biddiest people that there is this friendly little presence in the house whose job it is to watch us all the time and to report in on what we're doing. <laughs> and sure, they're reporting to Santa and sure, it's fun that we move the elf every day and we put them in different clothes and we put them in silly situations. But the underlying theme of that is that somebody who loves you is monitoring you. And then they get to school age and it turns into, you know, LifeLock 360 and phone tracking. And, you know, I'm your parent and I am going to read all of your text messages at night because I care about you and I want you to be safe. And all of these parenting messages that happen away from screens for the most part. Uh, last year, one of my clients as a joke, because they had gotten my elf on the shelf soapbox lecture, brought me an ornament they found that I want to say was Hallmark, but maybe not. Don't quote me on the brand, but it was a mainstream. They found it in a regular store Christmas ornament that was a surveillance camera and it was marked Santa's watching you. And they're like, okay, we thought you were crazy when you were talking about the elf, but this is ridiculous. And then uh, I had a friend who had a baby recently. They just had their first birthday and I was shopping for their present. And at Target in the baby toy aisle, there was a pretend webcam for like babies first streaming. And that's the psychoed that I'm talking about. I'm talking about clinicians having critical conversations around what are we teaching our children around information? What are we teaching them about their right to privacy? What are they what are we teaching them about their right to um turn off a screen, to not have a camera in their face, to not, to your point about Zuckerberg, have their pictures on social media? Are we even giving them that choice? Or are we saying, well, they're my children, they're my little progeny slash property, and I get to post their picture if I want to. We don't have any long-term data yet on the impact of a child whose entire life is posted online. Every embarrassing story, every humiliating picture, every goofball moment posted by their parents. This is the first generation that has grown up with that. And we're just now as researchers starting to have those conversations. But those are the threads I like to tie for my clients, because what we're seeing right now is a rise in coercive control in high school dating and in college dating. And the um, there's a whole um, sub-community on TikTok where young women teach each other tips for monitoring and tracking their boyfriends. And they don't consider that to be abusive or coercive. They consider that to be love and concern because that is what we are teaching children right now, that if I love you, I watch you. And if I care about you, I read your things. And if I want to keep you safe, I monitor all your movements. And all of that feels okay at seven, but I don't think it's what we want for our kids at 17. And it's certainly not what I want for myself at 37. And so before we even get into the minutia of like, what's a data blocker? What's a VPN? We can start with what toys are we giving our children and how are we parenting them to teach them that they have a right to privacy? Privacy is so different now than it was when you and I were children. Just enormously different concepts. I mean, I, I remember when the show Big Brother came out and this whole idea of like, you were being watched and there were cameras that were watching what you were doing. And then here I am talking to you having a conversation over a camera. Like it's just, 
it's a very different time than I think where many of us anticipated we would be. Um, can you talk just a bit about some of the consequences of unsafe digital use, particularly in the realm of sexuality, like knowing that we're grounding this conversation, particularly in sex and intimacy. What are we talking about here in terms of the risks? Uh, One of the most immediate risks, and I think it's one that people think about, but they don't necessarily know how to effectively prevent, is inadvertently giving away location, especially for people who are you know, single and dating or really active social media users. I mean, my son is 23. His entire social circle is on Discord. Some of his best friends he has not met in real life. And I respect that because I also have best friends I haven't met in real life. But we share pictures. We tell about our day. We give away little details that feel innocuous unless somebody happens to be curious about them. Um, there are frequently posts on Reddit or videos that people in the cybersecurity community will post where somebody's like, um, oh, this is me and my boys. Guess where we're at? And you'll see somebody go, okay, well, I triangulated the shadows of the sun and the angle of that rooftop to figure out what street corner you were standing on. And then I referenced that with Google Maps, figure out what crossroads looked like that and had that particular hotel. And they will walk people all the way through how a simple photo can tell you exactly where you're at. But more than that, photos, when we share them directly, have metadata that will literally tell you where you're at. You don't need to do any complicated shadow math. It's right there in the file that you're sharing to show your cute outfit ahead of your date with the new person you met on Bumble. And there are easy fixes for that. But the way that we share and the way that we communicate has become so fluid that I don't know that people take the time to do simple things that would keep them safe. So the first step is just, you know, being aware of what are the risks and what are easy things I can do to mitigate them. But location data is huge. Um, We like to think that pictures are anonymous. I I love the fact that Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg put little smiley faces over his kids' faces. I guarantee you he did that because he knows how powerful Facebook's facial recognition technology is. <laughs> but a lot of times, um, my I, I have a lot of clients that I'm sure you'll be shocked to hear are members of the alt sex community or are, you know, engaged in sex work or OnlyFans or any number of things. And often what they'll tell me is, well, I have a specific set of photos that I only use for that. So I know that if somebody does a a reverse image search, it won't come up because I don't use it anywhere else but on my OnlyFans. There are websites now that don't rely on you having posted things in other places. They can take any photo, scan your face, and compare that to every other face in their database and pull up other photos with faces like yours. So a lot of the early safety patterns that we developed, technology has outpaced. And being able to obfuscate, being able to know um, what risks you can prevent and what risks you have to decide if you're just willing to take or not, become a part of that safe sex profile. You know, when I was in high school, we talked about the risks of contracting STIs and how effective various forms of birth control were. And, you know, you got to sit down and think about, you know, do I want 100% guaranteed abstinence only? Am I comfortable with a 99% condom? What about like, 68% rhythm method, you know, what is my personal risk profile? And that's where we're at right now is we are at a stage where we need to be able to talk to our clients about what their personal risk profiles are 
including the things that they can't necessarily prevent. So then it becomes, do you just not put your face online? Do you not share those photos? How can you create safety for yourself to a degree that you feel comfortable with and still be aware of what's possible technologically that you might not be able to prevent? Building upon that, so let's just pull out what you mentioned, like location tracking, being able to figure out where somebody is. There are the more obvious safety implications of that, of someone with malintent being able to know your home address, for example, and whether or not you have a security system or whatever it is to learn these things about you and the potential risk to your physical safety. What are the other elements that maybe we're not thinking about in terms of risk, particularly post Roe v. Wade environment? And like, what does it mean to have as much of an online presence as many of us have? And what are the consequences of that in terms of sexual uh, and identity autonomy? The biggest thing that I've been having to talk about more recently and therefore learning to pronounce more eloquently recently is this whole concept of stochastic charism. Uh, This idea of harassment even in-person violence that is not overtly called for. It's hinted at and implied and danced around. And the right people will know what I mean when I say this person's a groomer and then post their office photo. And they'll know what to do because we all know what, what groomers are and how groomers should be treated. And I'm not saying that anybody should go and do anything to this person. I'm just posting a picture of their practice sign and saying that they're a groomer because they do gender affirming care, for example. That has become an incredibly scary and real risk for a lot of mental health providers, especially mental health providers that work with marginalized populations. Um, And recent Supreme Court rulings have made that prospect only scarier and more likely. Uh, Just, I think, this month, the Supreme Court ruled that online harassment is protected free speech that unless somebody is actually threatening you with actual violence, it does not count as harassment and it is protected speech. They overturned a conviction of somebody in Colorado that was convicted for um, emotional abuse of uh, another professional. And he was just let out of jail and they said, no, that's protected speech. So for people that work with marginalized populations, for people who are members of marginalized populations, these are already very heated and inflammatory and divided times. And the risks to, frankly, one's mental health, to one's sense of peace and safety are very real right now. Because it is incredibly easy to find people online. Um, Social media profiles are a thing. For mental health providers, if we take insurance, we have to have an MPI number. And unless you are 100% telehealth, if you see clients in person, you have to put your place where you see clients address in your MPI. There is no privacy protection, location protection for service providers. And in a world where people are being attacked, in a world where harassment has become the new default setting for a lot of people, um, it, it is very scary. And I think that that might not always result in physical risk or physical harm, but the constant emotional and mental bandwidth that it takes to deal with ugly comments and insults and harassment and threats and 
negative reviews online uh, can wear people down until they leave the field. And that is a risk that I think people are scared of experiencing, especially if they work in some specialized areas. Um, but it's not necessarily something that we have good systems in place to prevent yet. So that becomes one of those risk assessment pieces of if this is protected speech and if I'm required to put my profile on the MPI, do I even want to stay in the field? You know, those are questions people are having. And to a certain extent, it's it's an extreme example, but we're seeing that in smaller cases all the time. I mean, we're seeing LGBT people saying, I, I desperately need my community. I live in a rural area. I don't know anybody else like me. I desperately need people who support me, but I can't risk being online. I can't risk having my profile say X, Y, and Z. And so the isolation that that brings as well is another risk that we're seeing from a mental health perspective. I think you really bring up an important point about a mental health professional's awareness of this when considering the last handful of years and say someone who's working at certain clinics, we'll say, and people showing up at their place of work, their cars being um, vandalized, things of that nature. Here we are having this conversation now for mental health providers who have identified online, hey, I work with queer folk, hey, I work in the kink community, and then the onslaught of harassment that they may receive, particularly dependent on where they are. So knowing that in the communities where I'm working, those things are much more mainstream than they would be in other communities. I think even just that is an important message of you as a provider consider your footprint, consider where your information is going. And then that additional obligation to the client of having conversation about this and being aware of their online behavior and how that may be affecting their safety. Absolutely. And it becomes a way to cut people off from support, right? Because if they harass providers or if nothing's happening, but a a provider is worried about harassment, if they say, I offer gender affirming care. I am a queer affirming clinician. If people are scared to have that on their website because they're afraid of what might happen, then frankly, the harassment has already won because we have already limited care and shut off resources for people who desperately need it. And that's part of what makes this such an urgent topic for me is is for me, in many ways, this, this feels very much like a life or death situation because we are talking about whether or not people can access the mental health care that they need to survive the day. We are talking about whether or not women can access and childbearing people can access the health care they need to have an autonomous and safe and healthy life. And when we don't factor in the ways in which technology is used to intimidate people out of their autonomy and the ways in which people inadvertently relinquish privacy that can be weaponized against them, then we're we're putting people at risk and we can't protect against every form of harm. But the more we know, the better our choices can be. You work specifically in the realm of BDSM and kink. So when we're looking at a minoritized group of people, if you will, how does this conversation about digital safety layer on for folks in those communities? When we're talking about whether it's BDSM or kink, or we're just talking about the queer community at large, wherever that may include somebody, just anything that is not... um, the Times New Roman font, as we've talked about in past episodes. Um, Where does that leave uh, particular risk? 
one of the biggest challenges is also one of the biggest areas of support, which is small community-led, community-run websites, bulletin boards, chat groups, because they are led by people who care passionately about their community and who want to see their community safe and surviving and thriving. And all of that is wonderful. But these small independent projects are often run on shoestrings or are built by very well-intentioned developers out of their homes or their small business. And they don't necessarily always have the resources to put in a lot of cybersecurity protocols or systems. Um, part of, even before Dobbs happened, part of how this entered my radar as, as an area of potential concern was after my, my first book came out, somebody reached out to me on Twitter they reached out to me and they said, you know, I'm building this new website for, for kinky dating. It's going to be amazing. It's going to fix so many of the flaws and the creepers and other websites. Would you share it with your clients? And I think most mainstream mental health providers would be like, yes, new resource. Can't wait to tell everybody. But I'm married to a hacker. And so I hear scary stuff all the time. And I married into the hacker community. So I knew somebody to ask. And so I responded and I'm like, well, let me let me look at it before I say yes or no. And I sent a friend of ours a link. And this person's job is they, they get hired by companies to break in on purpose and then to give them reports on, on what they were able to do and how. That way the company can strengthen their systems and make them, make them stronger. Um, he is literally a professional hacker. And I told him, I said, I get that you're not hired by this company. I don't want you to poke around anywhere you're not allowed to be. If it's public facing, if it is already available, if it is something that you can get without going inside. Can you tell me if this is a safe website or to share or not? Because if it is, my clients would love this resource. And it took less than 30 minutes for them to come back and say, well, here are their users' Pinterest profiles. Here are the links to their Facebook pages. And that was without them needing to do anything that would actually involve breaching the website. And that's not intentional. It's not that these people are setting out to create something that's going to put their friends and neighbors at risk. It's that they're doing projects as a labor of love for their communities, and they don't have the resources to do that safely. And there's this assumption historically that, well, nobody's even going to know it's there. It's a very small website. It's a very tiny BBS service. Nobody even knows this Discord group. It's one of a million of other Discord groups until something goes wrong. And it's it's that conversation around what can we do to protect ourselves if something goes wrong? Because in the times that we're living in right now, people are being targeted, especially kinky people, especially queer people, especially trans people. So we can't just say we're so small they won't notice us anymore because the people that are targeting minorities are going out of their way to find them. And so being aware of those risks, asking those questions, Thinking about what what steps can we take to protect ourselves up front is, is really the best option that they have because the alternative is to withdraw from community entirely out of fear and that's not sustainable for anybody from a mental health perspective. In our world now, sex, sexuality are so intertwined with technology. With the advent of the internet, <laughs> I mean, it, it was as soon as it hit any mainstream computer that it was like, ooh, like what what can we go do in the fringes and and what can happen? And I mean, I remember unregulated chat rooms where you could create yourself to be anything you wanted to pretend to be, and anybody else could as well. And within months, years, 
that was a dominant conversation as somebody who is not a technology native. Um, to imagine the risks that folks are facing now because of the access to technology and the amount of information that's floating around out there. Can you speak about the relationship these days between sexuality and technology? And then take that a step further, again, looking at the marginalized communities and how that's playing out as a risk. Uh, one of the most common things that people think of is obviously, you know, the internet connected sex toys, right? Like our vibrators, how can, you can change the rhythm based on an app. Uh, you have Bluetooth enabled things that your partner can control when they're traveling. Uh, now there are paired devices that let two people effectively have sex by themselves together, thanks to the power of connected technology. Um, it's become one of the biggest industries in, in in the technology sector. And you're right, technology, the media, the, the minute it evolves, it is immediately eroticized. Uh, I have a conference talk that I do called 10,000 Years of Cyber Sex, and I literally start with the manipulation of clay and I work through to a hologram and AI partners. Um, but my favorite example was actually the most scandalous piece of emerging technology in the Victorian era. It was, I mean, people were outraged. They thought it was going to lead to um, unwed pregnancy, to premarital sex, to all sorts of debauchery. It was the public mailbox. The mailbox, when it first came out in London, absolutely outraged society. Because for the first time ever, young people could communicate without a chaperone. They didn't need the governess to physically walk the letter to the to the boy's house. The boy didn't need to slide a note into a tree branch or a bush for the girl to find in the park. They were able to communicate without adult supervision and it was scandalous. So really, truly, every technology is immediately eroticized. But today, those risks do become more extreme. Um, my partner and I are doing a conference this fall focusing on the intersection of intimacy and technology. And one of the speakers that we have, they're actually giving two separate talks and a demo, are the folks that run a group called the Internet of Dogs Project. And what they do is when new sex tech comes out, they buy it. Nobody gives it to them. They're not funded by any source. And they play with it and they try and break it. And then they reach out to the companies and they say, this is what we were able to do with your sex toy. You should fix that so people are safe. And one of the devices that they did that with was actually, a, coming back to the kink community, a Bluetooth-enabled cock cage, a chastity device for men to wear that was controlled by their partners, uh, an app on their phone. And the Internet of Dongs Project bought one of those and very quickly hacked it and reached out to the company and said, this is vulnerable, you need to fix this. It's an easy fix, but you need to fix it. And the company was like, much like I was talking about with small websites, why would anybody do that? It's a, it's a chastity device. Nobody even knows what they are. We have like maybe sell a thousand units a year. Like who's gonna hack a cot cage? And sure enough, in 2021, I believe, they were hacked. And a whole bunch of people had their genitals held for ransom. They had to pay Bitcoin ransom to get this device released from their genitals. And on one hand, like hacker people hear that and sounds hilarious. And even a lot of therapists, when I tell them this, will laugh. But I mean, I said in the beginning, my background is domestic violence, sexual assault. Like the trauma of that the absolute terror of having the most intimate parts of your anatomy trapped in a way that you can't control. 
and for people in power exchange relationships, for the person who is tasked with being that person's key holder, with being the one who lets them in and out of that device, to not be able to do that and to feel so helpless when your partner is going through this trauma and you can't prevent it or release them. It's a horrifying story. And the company knew it was possible and did nothing about it. So the the idea of connected tech, the idea of sex tech is really cool. And there are a lot of fun and amazing devices that can do all sorts of things. But I think it's really important, again, coming back to that sort of safety planning and risk assessment piece, to talk to our clients about, you know, well, okay, we know it's intended purpose, but how could this be misused? Let's just take a minute to just go crazy and think about the wildest thing we can possibly think about. What if your genitals were held for ransom for Bitcoin? Sounds ridiculous, I know, but just humor me. What if? Because that lets them conceptualize the what ifs and then decide if that's a risk they want to take or not. Um, A lot of my clients will say, you know, well, I don't use anything that's connected. I don't use anything that connects to Wi-Fi. I mean, sure, it's got an app that I use to control the speed or whatever, but I don't use anything that's connected to my my house system. And so it's not recording anything. I said, well, but it knows every time you open the app, right? They're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, so at a bare minimum, it knows every single time you're masturbating because it knows when you've turned it on and when you've turned it off. And they're like, oh. And I'm like, might not matter. You might be somebody who... If that were to be published and your boss and your grandparents were to see that you masturbate four times a day, you'd be like, yeah, I have a high libido. Go me. Other people might be mortified. But those are the kinds of things that it's important to think about because then you can decide for yourself if that's a risk that you're willing to take and if you're willing to tolerate. And if so, that's okay. Great. But I think that people need to be able to make those decisions for themselves, not be thrust into situations where it's already been made and now they have to react to it. For someone like you who is aware of the vulnerabilities. What does safe sex look like today for, we'll just say your average kinkster? In terms of technology or in general? That's a great question. Um, Let's say in terms of technology, when, as you've already discussed, when we're looking at these communities, there is a desire to connect there's the desire to be in amongst people who share this thing with us and the risk even there of self-identifying, getting in with a group that is not who they say they are. I mean, that's something we talked about in the reproductive justice course. It's that conversation about, okay, there's a billboard that's saying, come here for help. Like, we can help you with resources. And then you're assuming what those resources are and that organization isn't bound by HIPAA. They don't have any laws that are governing how they're using your information. The risks are there. But so like for those of us who work with kinky folk, it's like, I would love that really transparent conversation with you about like, here's what it actually looks like. And does it look like complete disconnection from like an online forum or like, how do you navigate safely? You know, I actually think that this is an area where the kink community has a leg up on the mainstream population, mostly because they also have a history of marginalization and discrimination. Um, It was only very, very recently that somebody could have their kink identity mentioned in family court and not lose their children. Um, Not that there were laws in place saying kinky people cannot parent, but when researchers went and looked for 
every family court case they could find where somebody's kink identity had been mentioned, not even as a factor in the divorce, just as a passing, this person is kinky and maybe it was part of a no-fault amicable divorce. They're kinky, I'm not, I don't want to be married. We, we both want to be happy. The minute somebody's kink identity was brought into the equation, they lost visitation time, they lost custody, they lost parenting time. It always, always, always had a negative impact up until I want to say like the 2019, 2020 was when researchers started seeing a case or two where that didn't happen. So because there has always been a higher degree of risk for kinky people in general. And that's just one example. Kinky people have always been a little bit more risk averse and a little bit more tolerant of obfuscation of identities online, I'll say. Um, if you go to a, a kink conference, you know, if somebody were to go to um, a, um, Thunder in the Mountain, which has just been renamed, it doesn't exist anymore, but they don't ask you for your legal name on your on your badge. You have to register with your legal name, but everybody is very comfortable with, but I want to be called Twinkie or I want to be called Sparkle or whatever it might be. The use of scene names is accepted in common. And I think that that is something that feels much more shady or suspicious in mainstream groups. If somebody just wants to be a part of a crocheting discord and they're using a name like Twinkie, people are gonna be like, what do you have to hide? when the reality is maybe they're just protecting their privacy. Um, using pictures and sending images. I think kinky people are much better at, you know, how do you want this cropped? Uh, they're better at asking for consent around digital images. Is this okay if I post? Do you want me to cut something out? Do you want me to remove the background? Any number of things. I think the use of images is much more overtly negotiated in the kink community than it is in perhaps other relationships. And I think that's something that we can all pick up from. Uh, there are lots of ways in which people who have been historically marginalized and oppressed are already implementing good safety practices. It's getting the rest of people who maybe haven't had those experiences and therefore don't have the same safety radar and risk antennae going that their marginalized peers do that we really need to reach. That's a really good point that you make about marginalization being the element that could inspire more fear, more thoughtfulness, more awareness of the implications. And for the folks who are not part of those communities to not really have thought twice about it because it's so mainstream that it it's just fine, quote unquote. Um, I think that's a really good point. When you're talking to clients about this kind of thing, so I'm imagining you're talking to a client and they self-disclose membership in a community online and they have sexual online relationships. Therapeutically, depending on this person, depending on your history with them, your relationship with them, yada, yada, simply that person's disclosure may be really difficult let alone talking about it, let alone getting into the nitty gritty about like, here are the safety issues. And then maybe your awareness as a clinician of like, if I, if I bring up, I don't know, concerns about this, I don't know what language is best, but like, if I bring up concerns about this or safety risks, then does it sound like I am further marginalizing their membership in this group of people? How do you have these conversations when someone says, oh yeah, I bought one of those devices that I can 
do it on my phone and it makes something cool happen for my partners in this country and in this country. And then like, we have a little party. Like, how do you wet blanket? (laughs) I'm just curious, like knowing what you know, like how do you navigate, like how, how do I present this information without like shutting it down? So you kind of have to approach it in the same way that you do conversations around safe sex in general. If I have a partner that tells me that they love pickup play and that there's nothing hotter for them than going to a bar after work and having a one night stand and then going home for the night, I'm not going to shame that behavior. I mean, my instinct is not to be like, oh, but that's promiscuity. Oh my goodness. Like we don't go to a values place. But I suspect the vast majority of us, the first question we ask would be like, well, you're using a condom though, right? And we kind of level set with this just sort of basic, almost universal sort of accepted understanding of what's a a good first question. Using a condom isn't necessarily a value statement on how much sex they're having or with who. We're just asking what steps they're taking to protect themselves. And for me, the digital equivalent is like a VPN, a a virtual private network. And and they're affordable and you can set them up online and it's very easy. But if somebody says, you know, I love um, my my partner travels for work a lot and we we sexed all the time or we have cyber sex. So we'll get on we'll get on um, FaceTime or Zoom and, and and flirt with each other. Well, you guys are using a VPN, right? Should feel as comfortable and natural and logical as you, you guys are using condoms, though, right? Because what that does is it lets you have that, oh, I, I don't even know what that is. What, what is that? Or, well, I mean, I know what it is. And theoretically, that makes sense. But it feels like a lot. And you have the conversation the same way you have the same sex conversation. Talking about a VPN and talking about a condom, the objections are the same. It's really annoying. I don't want to have to remember a password. It kills the mood in the moment. It's exactly the same as talking about condoms. And if you can have those conversations with your clients in ways that feel natural and low key, then you can get into, that's awesome. I'm glad you're doing that. So if you're already using a VPN, then I'm sure that you guys, you know, like you researched the company before you bought that particular toy, right? So why don't you tell me what you know about it? Like, I, I you're the first client I've had that you use those when you're traveling. I, I'm super excited to hear more. What, what did you learn about before you bought that that led you to pick that one? And it becomes motivational interviewing in the same way that we would around any other risk assessment behavior, where we're not judging or scaring or labeling. We're just asking good questions that leads them to thoughtful decision making for themselves. Thank you for such a thoughtful comparison in what you're saying about safe sex under the heading of STIs, let's say. For therapists who maybe are not as comfortable with technology, not as aware of technology, what resources are available to them? So like, I'm imagining this same client, this invisible fake person I've invented, uh, and they say to their therapist, oh, you know, like I engage in XYZ behavior, but this therapist is not well-versed in VPNs, doesn't know much about technology, doesn't know a lot about these devices. If we're looking at it through the lens of like, I don't want to say standard, but um, commonly discussed like refer out territory where it's like, oh, well, a client starts talking about a chronic illness that I have no familiarity about, like I can educate myself or I can refer out and see consultation or whatever. Can a therapist refer out? I mean, the ethical answer is sure. Anybody can refer out if they feel like they're not qualified to assist the client because our clients are 
deserving of the best possible care that we can provide. And if that's not us, we have an ethical obligation to refer out. That's the easy answer. The real answer is that this is a cultural competency issue. And not only is it a cultural competency issue, it is a cultural competency issue that affects each of us as much as it does our clients. And so outside of a very niche specialization in people that work with folks who have sexual attraction around technology, to the best of my knowledge, there is no field of mental health yet that is just the tech literate therapist. And I think that's because we should all become the tech literate therapist, because these are things that are going to impact and influence and, and be encountered by all of our clients, no matter who you work with. If you work with aging adults, how they communicate with their grandchildren and how they maintain close ties to families as they age beyond their tech knowledge is an important thing for them. If you work with young kids, that elf on the shelf thing and that idea of bodily autonomy and privacy autonomy mattering is important. If you're working with couples, are they using connected sex tech? Are they using a whole bunch of different apps to coordinate their uh, school schedule and their kids stuff and their travel? Like, how are they connecting as humans and how much of their relationship is mediated by technology? If you're working with substance users, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not going to keep going, but literally I, I, I would dare anybody to give me a population they work with where this is not relevant content. And then on top of that, it is directly relevant for each and every one of us because you and I are having this conversation on a, a technology platform. The people watching it are accessing it from their technology devices and their technology platforms. We are advertising on social media and on psychology today and on therapy that we are on, we all have a public presence as mental health professionals. A lot of us are doing electronic medical records and electronic billing now. And that's just the professional side of our lives. That's not factoring in the fact that we also have our TikToks and our Instagrams and our community accounts. This isn't something I personally think that any therapist can say, I'm not, I, I don't know what a VPN is, therefore I'm going to refer you to somebody who does. This is something that is so relevant and so necessary across the board that it's something that we should be seeking out continuing education on and that we should be able to do with our clients and also for ourselves. Knowing what you know, what are some of the most reliable resources for this kind of education? Um, it, Using technology community resources like TechCrunch and Wired are really good. Um, there is still, this is just now becoming an area of interest for mental health. There's not a lot for mental health yet. Uh, there is, um, was, I don't know how active they are now on Twitter, a group of social workers in tech, people who have social work degrees that started out maybe doing macro program admin or whatever, and then moved into the technology sector. They are great people to connect with. Um, my partner and I have a book coming out on this next year from Rutledge uh, that is called Securing Sexuality, Emerging Issues, or a Clinician's Guide to Emerging Issues at the Intersection of Intimacy and Technology, because there's nothing out there educating us about this. We're doing our conference on the same subject. Um, finding entry level, even at the local community college, take a you know web safety 101 class at your local community enrichment um, program, whether that's the community center or what have you. 
that can give you enough basic information to have some of these conversations with your clients. You don't need a, a software engineering degree to be able to have general conversations around good online safety practices and um, digital health. Marky Twist, who is um, a, a, an academic based out of Las Vegas, has worked with Neil MacArthur, who's a philosopher in Canada, to create a framework for digital health. Because our community has been talking about, you know, video game addiction and internet addiction and all this stuff and porn addiction. And Marky Twist and Neil MacArthur said, well, how do we know if something's unhealthy if we don't have a working definition of what healthy is? And so they've created um, the digital health framework for clinicians to use to just kind of understand what does healthy technology look, use look like. All of those things are easily accessible to, to general clinicians, and they won't just benefit your clients, they'll benefit you and your relationships as well. I think as you're talking about this, and I'm thinking about technology use with therapists, I think for many clinicians, it's like, well, yeah, like I have to use like certain password protections in order to see a client online and do virtual therapy. And then I need to make sure that any records I have are kept under two locking mechanisms. And we're like, okay, HIPAA. And there's like, that's it. <laughs> so it's like, I can imagine for you with your specialization, there's like, oh no, there's a lot more about digital citizenship beyond just HIPAA. And even then, I mean, HIPAA has so many myths and misconceptions about what data protects and how it's transmitted and things like that. It sounds like your hope moving forward is that as a field, we'll have more awareness and requirement for continuing education about this, which which I will say, as I think about it, many states in the last couple of years have moved toward more education around, say, telehealth and around HIPAA, around record protection. But from where you're coming, it's like, no, take it the step further to a conversation about what is digital health, what is digital citizenship in today's world. Um, and I want to point out for our listeners, we have a really great episode with Dr. Don Grant, where he's talking about this concept of digital citizenship. And this is something that the American Psychological Association is aware of and has been having this conversation because of the very real risks to what it means to be human, to put ourselves out there the way that we do online. And whether it's about safety or it's just about emotional health, this is part of the conversation, but we're not far enough yet. <laughs> it's evolving so quickly and we need more conversation. Can you speak a little bit more about the digital health framework? Um, just so our listeners can understand a little bit more about this and, and learn about it as a resource. Yeah, so the digital health framework, uh, they actually based it off of... Um, the um, out of control sexual behavior framework that was created by Doug Braun Harvey and Michael Vigorito. Um, because in the same sort of way, people were looking at sex, um, sexual behaviors, at porn use, and they were um, very confused about what was healthy and what wasn't. It was a very difficult time for people. And so Vigorito and Bron Harvey created this idea of this is what sexual health looks like and this is how we can differentiate between that and others. Uh, Twist and MacArthur took that on and kind of built on the same platform. I'm trying really hard to pull up the um, principles. But what they did is they came up with five, I believe, guiding frameworks or guiding principles for um, 
assessing whether or not somebody's behavior is healthy or whether it is maladaptive. Uh, they are personalization, participation, precision, and prevention. So they are looking at um, how people use technology, how they relate to technology, whether or not it's interfering with their daily lives and relationships, um, whether or not they're starting to lose um, or be distracted from uh, relationships in real life, like work, parenting, partners, uh, whether they're distracted from daily living and independent living skills. But for the most part, they give this idea of this is what healthy digital usage looks like. And if what we're seeing falls within this framework, even if what um, we're seeing might not be comfortable for us, then we can say that they are coming from a position of health, that what they are doing is healthy, even if it might not necessarily be comfortable for us. And from there, we work within strengthening their skills, as opposed to the usual Often in technology, what's happened is it's been an abstinence-only model, much like sex. Sex and tech go hand in hand that way. Uh, a lot of people are going to listen to this conversation and go, Stephanie said scary stuff. I didn't understand all of it, but I did notice that she said we can't prevent everything. Therefore, the best way to prevent everything is not to do anything. I've gotten rid of my mobile phone. I have deleted all of my profiles. I am safe now. Yes. But it's not reasonable to live in an abstinence-only world with technology because you can't not. Again, if you're watching this talk, you're already leveraging technology. So rather than taking this idea that the only safe approach is to, you know, revert back to pre-industrial times, uh, they have tried to say this is a way that people can move within a digital world safely and healthfully. And this is um, a criterion that clinicians can reference when they're assessing their clients and having those conversations with them. I feel like that was a very long-winded answer. No, it was a great answer because I think sometimes it's hard for clinicians to have these conversations with clients because it can feel like it's about judgment. So to your point earlier about, hey, I'm really into like hookup culture. I really like a one night stand and it's really exciting. And then a clinician being like, well, I have concerns about your safety. And it's like, well, is that coming off as a judgment? Like, are you now saying that I shouldn't be engaging that behavior? And so I think having tools like you're suggesting with the digital health framework, I think that's helpful because it allows us to hold on to something concrete and say, let's discuss this where this is separate from me. This is separate from any ethical, moral, righteousness assertion. This is simply, let's talk about this evaluation through the lens of safety. I'm cool to talk about this client. Let's talk about this because I think this is part of the conversation for your healthy sexuality. And I think that that in and of itself is useful to, to have that assessment tool. I'm glad you, you brought it up and, and you are introducing these resources because again, it is so mind bending when you're on the outside not really aware of these risks even for ourselves. The more we educate ourselves, the more we can do for our clients and also apply it to ourselves. In my world, I might spend a month researching dollification kinks. And that will be very, very useful to the one client I have for whom that is their life and identity. But it's not something that's going to necessarily impact me and my relationships. With this, everything that we learn not only builds our clinical skills and helps us protect our clients, but it's also directly relevant to our own lives and choices and lets us be safer and more protected ourselves. 
Dr. Gore, like you've talked about so many different themes that are simply scratching the surface and hinting to our need to know more. You've mentioned some resources. Uh, you have a book that you've co-authored that'll be coming out next year. I know there are conferences that are going on about this conversation. Again, the American Psychological Association has been investing more time and energy in understanding what digital citizenship, what digital health looks like. Where are the other best resources that you have? Are there any particular books or websites that you're particularly fond of for therapists going, okay, I'm going to spend an hour today learning more about this? So I will say um, there's not a lot out there yet. Uh, my partner was just asked to sit on a panel, um, an expert panel talking about uh, clinicians working with trans clients and what they need to do to keep themselves right now. And he spent about two months looking for resources and found very, very little. It's just, this is so emergent. It's not really there yet. Um, we are doing that work as much as we can. So we have a weekly podcast called Securing Sexuality which every week is a new episode focusing on a topic in this area. So we, we uh, I think two weeks ago, did one called What to Do When It's Scary to Do Your Job that was talking specifically about the fear that clinicians are feeling right now. Uh, we have interviewed privacy experts. We have interviewed mental health professionals. We really lean into this idea that if we educate clinicians, we're educating the entire world. So um, that is one resource that's available. We're doing a live conference this fall in Detroit that is bringing 25 of those experts from across disciplines together to talk about these in depth. Um, and as more resources come available, I am all about boosting other people's signals and sharing other people's work. So we tend to have them rapidly on our podcast or else promote them on our um, website because we know that people need these resources and we know that they're hard to find and scarce. So as uh, our list builds, we do add to it and we are always a resource available for people who, if they have a specific question or need help in a specific content area, they can always reach out directly and we can point them towards an expert working in that area who might not have a book or a paper written, but is available for consultation. And we try to be a resource as much as possible. But this really truly is an emerging area that I don't think people have fully recognized the importance of quite yet. Absolutely. Um, thank you. Thank you for spending this hour with us and I think making us all toss a little, toss and turn a little bit tonight. Um, but, but I'm glad that there are folks like you who are delivering these messages because I would rather have us hearing it from you than have us learn it the hard way other ways with ourselves or with our clients. Uh, thank you again to our listeners. This is Dr. Stephanie Gorlick, and she can be found uh, any number of different resources, but she is the author of The Leather Couch. And also you can look at her uh, podcast. She has um, The Leather Chair, right? And The Leather Chair is my, sec my second book. Okay, the book. Uh, podcast, conference, everything related to mental health and technology is securingsexuality.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, thank you again, Dr. Gorlick. You've shared so much information. I appreciate you being here and talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.